0: So may the Lord accept the inadequacy of my words and transform them to his glory. And may I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Can we just give our four candidates another round of applause? I thought their testimonies were brilliant. Brilliant. always good to give such words of encouragement when people are standing here up at the front. And it's been an extraordinary week, hasn't it? It's been an extraordinary week in terms of public discourse, the kind of conversations, the kind of things that people say in public. You may be aware that on Friday, just a couple of days ago, the bishops of the Church of England made a very formal statement about public discourse, the sort of language that gets used, the way in which we treat each other, particularly when we're in positions of leadership and responsibility. I don't know if you've read the letter and what impact it might make, but the events, it seems to me, of the last few days in Parliament have raised all sorts of question marks about the sort of depths that we will go to in terms of humanity. We've seen some pretty ugly images of humanity, it seems to me. Is it okay in public debate to use language like traitor and fascist? Or is it right to say in public debate that the judiciary in its highest sense is wrong? Or indeed when someone complains about death threats, that they are merely cast aside as humbug? What's your response to what's been taking place in the course of this week? And how does it mean that the rest of us should behave? Does this make it okay for you and for me to use that sort of language in our day-to-day lives? How should the rest of us act when we see those in positions of leadership acting in such a way? Particularly In a time of conflict, recognising that actually conflict is the most natural thing in the world. But conflict needs to be treated very carefully indeed. I wonder what conflicts you're in at the moment. You will have some, I'm without doubt. And the extraordinary thing is, you put two people in a room together and give them an opportunity to talk about anything they want to, eventually you will find conflict. As I say, conflict is the most natural state of affairs for humanity. Let's not be surprised, perhaps, at the discourse of the last week. How we deal with conflict says a lot about our character. How we deal with disagreement difference of opinion, can say something very revealing about the way in which we view humanity, perhaps about the way in which we understand who Jesus is and the impact of the cross upon our day-to-day lives. At the same time as this conflict that we've seen on this very national stage, four young people in the last three weeks in Camden have been killed through conflict. Young people on our streets in this borough. Some form of significant youth violence. We know that others have been stabbed in this borough in that time as well. Just over a week ago, quite a number of us gathered at St Mary's Primrose Hill just down the road. Do you know where 16 young people's names were read out? all of whom had recently died as a result of a society to be unable to deal with conflict or difference. An argument leading to sudden anger and in a fit of anger for a young person to a knife being used or in one instance a gun being used. In Camden, perhaps over a fight over drugs Or perhaps even something as trivial as a phone or a bike. See, conflict is the most natural thing in the world. How we deal with conflict says something about our character. So what do you do when you get angry? How do you deal with your anger? We all get angry. What happens when you get angry? What patterns of behaviour do you enter into? Do you sulk? Do you bully? Or do you just think to yourself that everyone else is wrong? Or might you just think in the midst of the anger, in the midst of conflict, that you might, just might, have something to learn Are you anxious? Do you get threatened? Have you ever said something in the fit of anger that you really regretted afterwards? I have. I'm sure I'm not the only one here in church tonight. And are you the kind of person who will then repeat conversations time and time and time again in your heads, thinking, I really wish I'd said that? Conflict. Do you let things boil up? and then let them ruin a particular moment, or perhaps ruin a particular relationship. Or in some cases, as we will know, a moment of conflict can ruin a life. You see, we all deal with conflict in different ways. Because there's always some form of conflict to deal with. And perhaps it's when we dare to reflect upon the patterns of behaviour when we deal with conflict and difficult situations, perhaps we then realise, do you know what? We're not that much different from members of parliament or the angry young person in the street who lashes out. Perhaps who has been groomed by a drug-induced system that abuses young people. And when we think about conflict, we see humanity in its brokenness, in its anger, in its ugliness, its fragility and its pain. And we then come to tonight's gospel reading. A gospel reading in the context of a group of people who are under Roman occupation, who are hoping... For some form of release from their imprisonment. All sorts of different cultures are trying to exist side by side. And when such cultures exist side by side, when there's difference in the room, you will find conflict. And no doubt the people listening to Jesus in these particular moments from John's Gospel are themselves, like us, in a humanity which is hurting rejected, perhaps even like sheep without a shepherd. And as we know from the crucifixion narratives, in the age of no internet, public discourse, speaking, and of course mob rule, are commonplace. And so we are met by a group of people who are broken and vulnerable and hurting, where just a few men have a public voice, And the majority of people in the cultural and political systems are squashed and they are voiceless. Sound familiar? Conflict. And it's in the midst of this conflict that this itinerant preacher, rabbi, appears. He's stirring things up. As a caveat, let's not forget too that when we come to any reading from John's gospel where each word is laden with meaning, John has been thinking about crafting every single one of these words whilst he is in exile and beyond. And there is a theology rooted in the heart of every page when we come to John's gospel, having been reflected upon for decades by the author, leading us into this extraordinary gospel that's full of meaning and love and truth. These words are not written by accident. These words are pointed, everyone carefully chosen. And so we come to John chapter 6. Already there's been an extraordinary series of signs and wonders in this chapter. John is evolving our testimony, our story for us. Revealing something of Jesus' love affair with his creatures and his creation. Verses 1 to 15 in this chapter tells us of the feeding of the 5,000 with the bread and the fish, all from that rather unsuspecting young person who's bought his shopping with him. To this extraordinary moment of public discourse, this mob rule setting, a whole crowd when they get together can turn ugly very quickly. They were hungry, but wow, they were fed in that miraculous dinner. Job done, mob rule, no thank you, no writing tonight, thank you very much indeed. This is a miracle moment in John's Gospel, describing Jesus as the one of abundance, generosity, and of enormous sense of hope. His ownership of all things lay bare which then he kindly lends to us. Then as the disciples manage to get away from the mob, Jesus comes to them walking on water, verses 16 to 24. Once again, Jesus is defying normality. He's defying creation, showing something of his lordship over creation. The one through whom all things came into being is showing his power over his creation. This water that he's walking on belongs to him. He might as well walk on it and not sink. He's in charge. And whilst this extraordinary miracle is taking place, we are told that the mob... The crowd are getting into boats. He's disappeared and they want to go looking for him. They've been fed. They want more of that delicious bread and fish, all free of charge. It's been yon since they've been given anything free of charge under Roman occupation. They want something different. And here, freebies. We all love a freebie. How extraordinary then that these people jump into these boats. We're told they go across the Sea of Galilee. They don't quite go across because it's going north if you know your geography. But they are being drawn by something glorious. They're being drawn by Jesus' presence. The Spirit at work through them, drawing them because they want more. They are hungry. The mob is suddenly seeing something that looks slightly different. And they go to Capernaum, just up the shoreline. And then the conversation begins. Trying to work out what is this all about? Who is this rabbi preacher who is doing things slightly differently than we are used to? No squashing people down here because they're poor or they're enslaved. But raising up. Setting free men and women to enter into this glorious new relationship. So, Jesus, when did you come here? We've been looking for you. Well, notice how Jesus can't be bothered with that kind of question. He doesn't respond to it, of course. Because perhaps he's disappeared away from them to get away from them. Do you know at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, what's taking place? The mob rules start shouting for him to be crowned a king. He wants to get away from that. This isn't all about his vanity. This is about everyday people enjoying something of his everyday gifts. He doesn't want to be drawn back into some sort of status conversation. He knows full well who he is. He's just demonstrated by walking on the water. And he puts it back to the mob rule, the crowd, by asking a number of questions. He goes straight into one of his very truly I tell you state phrases, so commonplace in John's Gospel. You're only looking for me because you have eaten and you're now full. But this food that you've received will perish. What then? And he challenges them to start perhaps working for the food that lasts forever, which the Son of Man will give you. It is on him that the Father has set his seal. There's something of God being revealed to that crowd as they gather in that place. This is the Father's hand at work. This is God, the living water, the bread who sustains. God in human form, loving and providing for the eternal needs of his creatures. Recalling the earlier statement in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 33, whoever accepts the testimony of the one who came from above sets his seal on the truthfulness of God. So the revealing, the revelation continues. Well, that's okay for you, Jesus, to say these things. So what must we do? What's the impact upon our lives? Well, this is the work of God, says Jesus. Look around you. Believe what is going on. Believe what you can see. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him. Well, they still want the signs and wonder stuff. They still want a bit more bread. They still want a bit more fish. Perhaps after all that traveling across the lake, they're a little bit hungry again. Prove it. What are you doing? What are you performing? you try to trick us? It's all very well to speak of the old bread trick. Our ancestors ate that. manner in the desert, we know all about that. So what's so special about you? Why are you so special in this particular midst? You prove who you are. Jesus' response at this moment gets right to the crux of today's gospel reading. Look, he says, I'm not Moses. He gave you bread. You ate it. You then became hungry. Let's remember that. God gave you those gifts, but you stayed hungry. This is different. The bread that I'm talking about here will make an impact upon each and every one of your lives. Because it's my father, not who gave, he says at this moment, but it's my father who gives. And at this point, he's not talking about the past tense, he's talking about the present tense. Which means that we are hearing the same thing now. If we understand that recalling a past event in the Jewish tradition makes it present in the here and now. So we remind ourselves, it's my father, says Jesus, who gives to you. You're caught up in this gospel reading through all that. It's my father who gives to you. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. True bread. Alethinos. True. Not just some sort of bread that comes from the baker. This is bread of a different kind. Not as food bread, but as an eschatological reality. This is about also the end times. This is about eternity. This is about love. This is about your life in all its fullness. And ultimately this image that Jesus gives to us is a precursor for the cross. Where that real and new loving relationship becomes for all to enjoy. I am that bread says Jesus, I am that gift. I am the one who sustains. I am the one who brings eternity. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will be left hungry or thirsty because I love you that much. I don't want you to walk away hungry. I love you that much. And yes, as Jesus in this, as the bread of life, I will change your attitudes. I will show you how to love, how to live in grace, how to live in forgiveness. And I will give you a voice. No squashing and silencing here, thank you very much. But I will give you a voice, all of you. It's no wonder, my friends, that the crowd at this moment, as suddenly the penny drops, there's a moment of revelation, Sir! Give us this bread, always, always. And then, of course, we're taken to the cross as the story continues, when the extent of God's love affair with you comes to the fullest of fruition. How extraordinary that we see how God deals with humanity and conflict right in the heart of these passages. Let's take us forward to the place of the cross. Particularly as we're thinking about the conflicts that we face today. What does Peter do as Jesus is being arrested? He takes out a knife and he stabs someone. Cutting off the high priest slave's ear. This is a full-blown knife attack from St. Peter, of all people, the day that Jesus dies. And then let's also think of the mob rule once again. They're placated at this point, they're enjoying thinking about the bread of life, but they won't always be placated. When Jesus was crucified, it is the mob who shout for his death. Nails in the most brutal stabbing incident where Jesus is left publicly for dead. How extraordinary, then, when we understand how God deals with conflict, that when Jesus is resurrected, when the bread of life is fully revealed in his resurrected body, he says, Peace. Isn't that amazing? He says, Peace. No retribution, no retaliation, no angst, no vendettas, just peace. Such is the grace of God. You see, my friends, conflict abounds, conflict's everywhere, it's very natural. Conflict is here in the New Testament with Jesus' interaction with the crowd. Conflict is here in the church. Conflict is here in the wider society. And I would imagine there's a bit of conflict in each of our families. And yet, what builds is the bread of life that is Jesus Christ all too often it seems to me we sit in our own judgment seats we judge other people as to whose rights are wrong in conflict perhaps almost at arm's length and yet of course our flourishing and our thriving comes only when we recognize our need of him when we are that crowd with whom the penny has dropped and we shout out sir Give us this bread always, because we need that bread in order for us to flourish. Which, of course, does mean laying aside our vanity and saying sorry and resting in him. And I wonder, perhaps it's good that we pray for our government, that they pray heed, should pay heed rather to these words. So that this rhetoric, this important message of Jesus, has an impact upon all of our lives. And also I pray that this image of how we deal with conflict in Jesus Christ through the cross will have an effect upon those caught up in a life of serious violence, fueled by drugs and a sense of honour. We must take note. And what of you, confirmation candidates, on this night? What's your response to this reading? Tom, what's your response to this reading? Corinne, what's your response to this reading? How do we respond to this image of the bread from heaven? I wonder whether it is your cry of, Sir, give us this bread always, or does sometimes you think your own ways are actually more important? You'd be very human if you did. And yet, in the resurrection, we see peace. We see peace from the one who commands us to love each other, who ties a towel around his waist and tells us to wash each other's feet. This is the bread that I look to and you look to, and this is the hope that our community cries out for. Jesus as the bread of life, enabled through blood given. So often in our conflicts, it seems to me, They're ones where there's some some kind of impossible resolution which is rooted in the concept of blood taken. How different from the image of the cross where it is God's blood given. This image, this reality, which brings us salvation, hope, and peace. One where I hope we might find in our crazy 21st century London where we might find our true sense of meaning and purpose. We all get angry. We all live in conflict. How, we'll do, how we deal with conflict will say much about our character and who we are. Why not this week, as we respond to the events in Parliament, as we respond to the events of the streets of Camden. Why not seek peace? And may your cry be, Sir, give us the bread of life always.